Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It is truly a pleasure and an honor for me to welcome an old, a friend of many, many years, Rav David Stav. But he's not just a friend, he's also a great leader within Klal Yisrael. He's the chief rabbi of a city of Shoham. Everyone knows where Shoham is, even though they may not know Shoham because it's right next to the airport. It's an important city there. And he's the chairman of the Tsohar organization, which has done so much good for Klal Yisrael. And I understand he's also the Rav of the Tenuat Noah of Ezra, which he and I have never spoken about. Ezra, for those who are not as familiar, is a religious Zionist move, youth movement that was associated with the Pulat, the Poale um, Agudat Yisrael many years ago when Pai existed in the same way, but it's a very important organization as well. And I could go on and on, except to say that he is one of the people who is a mover and shaker in the Jewish world. And so, Rav Stav, thank you so much for joining us today. Shalom to everybody. Shalom, Rav Matenki. Thank you for inviting me to this uh, discussion. And I would like to share with you some thoughts a bit about Zohar and how we, this organization today is very, very relevant to what's going on in Israel today. I will start with Tsoa, but in order to explain what Tsoa is doing, I have to give a short uh, introduction. In Israel, unlike America, there is a connection, a huge connection between state and church. Actually, there is no civil marriage in Israel, and every secular couple, just like religious couple, observant couple, has to get married through the rabbinate. That's one of the ways that uh, the state of Israel is defined as a Jewish state by the fact that marriages and divorces are done through the religion people are affiliated with. Now, basically I'm very, very much in favor of that because this guarantees a kind of an umbrella for Klal Israel, for all the Jews that will get married under this umbrella of the chief rabbinate and eventually it will guarantee one United Nation for generations. What's the problem? The problem is that A, many Israelis are secular and don't want to get married this way. B, many of them feel that there are a lot of obstacles that are um, put in front of them when they want to get married, such as we have in Israel, 1.5 million immigrants that have arrived from the former Soviet Union in the last 30 years. Now, all these, forget the non-Jewish people that need to convert. Let's talk about those who are halachically Jewish. Still, they have to prove that they are Jewish. Now, how do you prove that you are Jewish if you don't have a ktubah, if you don't have the halachic certificate that approves that your parents or yourself got married in a halachic Jewish way. Now, all of the Russians don't have this uh, document because under the communist regime, there was no Jewish marriage and no halachic marriage. So all of a the sudden, these, the average Israeli couple that uh, wants to get, I'm talking about the ones that do want to get married, all of a sudden, when it comes to register to the rabbinate, he discovers that he has to go through a process that even if it will be the most friendly, most friendly, uh, the, the friendliest process still, 
it's alienating for him because he feels that he's Jewish and he doesn't have to prove it to nobody. Here he has to go through a very, very difficult process of proving his uh, alachic Jewish status. So that's point B. Now, if you add to that the Chilol Hashem, the disgracing of the name of God in many occasions because rabbis didn't show up in time, rabbis charged a lot of money, and etc., etc., many, many rumors and stories that went, that were very, very much, gave a very bad name to the um, religious marriage, we found ourselves in a situation where more and more Israeli couples don't want to get married in a logic way, but furthermore than that, they don't want to hear anything from Judaism. And that's the, the, that's the worst uh, issue about that. More and more secular people feel that Judaism is not relevant for them. We in Tsar, after the assassination of the Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin in 1995, we understood that we ought to do something about it because otherwise we'll be divided to two or three or four nations, and this will be a disaster for the Israeli society and for the state of Israel. So we started a small project called Chatunot, Meizama Chatunot, the flagship of Tzohar, to get married through our rabbis. We actually had three conditions to whoever who wants to participate in this project. A, you have to show up in time. B, you have to invite the couple to you, to your home before, before the wedding, see, you are not allowed to, to, to charge money. Now, when I, I know Rabbi Matankin, I guess um, when he hears the three demands, he asks himself, wait a minute, what's, the, what's new about it? Every American typical rabbi, I guess, is committed to these three values. And I don't know an American rabbi that will not invite the couple at least once, maybe twice, maybe more than that, before he officiates the wedding. That's not the case in Israel. Because unlike America, despite the fact that all couples must get married through the rabbinate, but almost none of them has a rabbi, because none of them is connected to a community. I'm not First of all, most of the shuls in Israel don't have a rabbi. B, 99% of the secular people are not visiting shul, not even in Yom Kippur. So forget, forget being connected to, to a community on a, on a weekly basis or on a daily basis, but on a yearly basis. So when do they meet the rabbi in the first time? They meet him in the night of the, of the wedding. By the way, most of the time, the rabbi himself didn't know what couple is going to marry because he gets, he gets a list from the rabbinate. Maybe he switches with another colleague a day before or a week before, he has no connection to the couple. We started with that project, which had a tremendous good reputation. Today, we perform every year 4,000 weddings a year. But once we realized that the thirst for such Judaism was so, was so strong, we started to expand our activities to different areas. We expanded to bar mitzvah programs, to helping Russians to prove their Jewishness. By the way, we help Americans as well, North Americans and South Americans. We started to deal with a lot of areas where secular people meet their religious establishment, in burial, in other areas of, of Jewish life. And we started to create a kind of a alternative 
to the familiar uh, establishment, which works along with the rabbinate, but gives provides the services in different approach in a different way. That's so, basically what Tzohar is doing. So when you say you work with the Rabbanut, for example, is it because you all you are also a chief rabbi of Shoham and therefore part of the Rabbanut structure and it's able to work through you? Uh, look, I, I would say it in, in, I'll put it this way. There are issues that actually we are the long arm of the Rabbanut. When we perform weddings, when we give bride counseling, when we help the Russians to, um, to help to prove their Jewishness, actually the, most of the people that come to us are sent to us by the rabbinate because the rabbinate doesn't have the tools, unfortunately, to deal with these issues of helping the, the Russians to prove their Jewishness. So there are projects that we do with the rabbinate there are projects that we do and the rabbinate has no connection to them. There are, there is one project that is perceived as something that works against the rabbinate. But I will not go into the detail. Uh, detail. But, so but basically, you, what? No, so for instance, you mentioned you do about 4,000 weddings a year through the rabbis who are associated with Tzohar. How many weddings do you think take place in Israel besides the Haredi community? It's not what I think, it's what I know. You know. um, so, uh, first of all, uh, I think people have to understand all the weddings that we perform are registered by the chief rabbinate. We're right. not talking about uh, um, private organization that is doing something uh, without the system. We are actually the we are registering couples on behalf of the chief rabbinate. Now. Um, how many weddings are done in Israel? We know the numbers. The numbers today are that every year they are registered in the rabbinate around 33,000 weddings a year. Among this, this, this number, um, about between 15 to 17,000 marriages are done to Haredi and to religious um, couples, which means that about about 15,000 couples are getting married secular. It's not a high number because in previous years, we had already 37 and 38 and almost 40. It's a kind of um, a tendency less and less to get married through the rabbinate, less and less to get married at all, and less and less to get married in the, through the rabbinate because if from two years ago we were 37, and this year we had 33, and the population keeps on growing, and the percentage of Haredim that are getting married is also growing in around these numbers. It means that basically less and less secular people are getting married, and that's a disaster. We want them all to get married through the rabbinate because otherwise their kids, their descendants will not be recognized as Jews, and this is a real pity. Now, in recent, with, with the rise of the, uh, of the new government and the new Saradatot, Matan Kahana, there have been a number of changes that have taken, that are proposed to take place or may already be taking place in terms of conversion and other aspects of what the Rabbanut had done in the past. I know in, when I was speaking with, with him early in the summer with, with Minister Kahana, your name came up 
And Tsohar's name came up very often because he views many of the proposals of Tsohar as the proposals that he wants to follow. Have those proposals of how conversions are managed and, and other aspects in Kashrut, have those changed already in Israel? Is it entered into so, law? Um, yeah, it's a very important question. Let's divide the question to two because there is one issue, Kashrut, and the second issue is uh, conversion. The reform of the, of the Kashrut has passed. Has passed a few weeks ago. It will be implemented in two stages. First stage is going to be open January 1st, which means in two weeks from now, two and a half weeks. And I will explain in a minute what does it mean. And the second stage will be implemented January, 1st of January 23. Now, what does this reform say? On the first stage, it says that from January 1st to from January 22, there will be a kind of a competition between the rabbinates, which means that, for instance, the rabbinate of Shoham will be able to provide kashrut services to stores or restaurants or factories that are not in the region of Shoham and vice versa. The rabbinate of Tel Aviv will be able to provide kashrut in the region of Shoham. What's the idea of this? That's stage one. What's the idea of this? The idea is that many complaint. There were many complaints against rabbinate that worked as monopoly, and they felt that they could demand crazy demands, financial demands, and other demands from the businessmen from the owners of the restaurants with no justification because they had no other choice because they were actually captive audience by the, uh, like hostages by the local rabbinate. Now, once there will be a competition, the, rab the, the rabbi, let's say of Shoham, let's speak about myself, I will have to think five times before I demand high demands of different, different types of demands because I know that the restaurant will have an alternative. If I will exaggerate with my, my demands, whether they are financial demands and other demands, it will go to another rabbin. So that's the idea of stage one. Stage two is much more uh, uh, meaningful. Stage two actually says that it's the rabbinate will be, the local rabbis will be able to continue to provide kashrut, but there will be corporations of kashrut that will have the same authority um, to give kashrut. I, I will take each one of you, give a look at your wine bottle that you bought from Israel. Even, uh, let's take Yarden. You, you, it's a lovely wine. And if you give a look at the stamp, you will see at least two or three or four or five stamps. The rabbinate, the OUP, if it's kosher for Pesach, the... Um, but that's Bet Yosef, but that's a Dachari. Now the question is, why does the restaurant has to pay to two, three or four supervisions? If they want Rabinet, let them pay to the Rabinet. If they want OU, let them pay to the OU. Why do they need multiply uh, approvals? The, re the answer is that the law demanded that each one will use the Rabinet and only in addition, to use corporations of Kashrut. Now the law 
changed and said, no, if you want to take the OU, take the OU. If you want to take Bet Yosef, take Bet Yosef. You don't have to pay twice. Now, each one of these corporations will have to stick to a certain regulation that will be transparent, and there will be somebody, either the chief rabbinate or another way, but basically the chief rabbinate that will make sure that the regulations of the chief rabbinate are implemented by this corporation. So let's say the OU wants to give kashrut on Yain Yarden or Yekev Psagot, winery of Psagot, or winery of Shiloh. So then there will be criterions, and the OU will say, okay, I, uh, I obey to the rules. So that's the second stage of the reform. Now so of, about conversion. Oh, before you get to conversion, so part of the problem with that, in the United States, for example, we have open competition, and we have more hechsherim, even though they may not be larger, but there are more hechsherim that we don't rely on than those that we do rely on. And the reason why those hechsherim that we don't rely on can stay in business is because there are people who just don't know any better. And they're willing to use them because they say kosher means kosher. Like in the olden days, they would just put a K on a label. It meant nothing. But then people would say, if it's got a K, I'll rely on it. People who are more informed will use a better ashkacha. And so what happens in the United States, while there's a lot of good coming out of the competition, there's also a lot of challenges and a lot of bad. What's to protect that from happening in Israel? Or we know, you know, Americans will say, we rely on certain communities and their rabbanut in certain communities more than we will on others in terms of kashrut. They have a better system. They have okay. more people working. So uh, let me respond to that. First of all, unlike America, each one of the cooperation has to be led. A, it's going to be supervised by the chief rabbinate. B, it's going, it has to be led by rabbinic authority. C, they have to be very transparent about their regulations and the way they are implementing their regulations. And they will be supervised. The Corporations, unlike America, without mentioning names, I think we all know about what you're talking about, uh, without mentioning names, nobody could, could uh, supervise. It's all, it goes by, uh, from word to mouth, this is better, this is, le this is less. By the way, I'm not sure about what the, the comment that you made about the reliability of the rabbinate. I mean, you have to realize that today, most, A, all Haredi people, none of them relies on the rabbin. None of them. Because, and, and I cannot blame them. Many, let's say, Haredi uh, Lumi, many right-wing people in the, in the Zionist movement do not rely as well. As a matter of a fact, um, just for your information, over 40 cities in Israel don't have a rabbi. So when, for instance, when you come to Tel Aviv, and I guess, I hope COVID will disappear and please we'll God, you'll be able to come soon. When you come to Tel Aviv, you have to know there is no rabbi in Tel Aviv. So when you eat from the kashrut of the rabbinate of Tel Aviv, actually you eat from the kashrut of an officer, a political appointment, the head of the religious council with no rabbi for the last five or six years. Rabbi Lau has retired many years ago. The same thing applies to Haifa, the same thing applies to Rehovot, to Rishon Lezion, 
to Ashkelon and could give a long list of uh, so the situation today is quite complicated. If there were not thousands of complaints against the rabbinate and it ended up with the decision of the Supreme Court that the entire system of the rabbinate is not legal. As a matter of fact, unlike America, I hope unlike America, the supervisor gets paid from the owner of the restaurant, which Ramosha Feinstein wrote in the tshuva that is halakhically unaccepted because he should not get paid by the by his employee, by, by the restaurant, he should get paid by the corporation. And the Supreme Court in Israel said, this is illegal, what's going on here, because he cannot supervise something that he gets paid from, from the second hand. Anyway, this is what's going to happen. I cannot tell you if it's, if it's good or bad. I can tell you that it's, it shakes the boat. It, a lot of things will change because of that. Um, let's dedicate a few words to conversion. The bill is in, still in writing. So we believe that within two weeks, there will be a, a first call in the Knesset. You know, every bill in Israel has to pass three calls. Three times the Knesset has to vote on that, vote, on that bill. And between the, the calls, there are a lot of sessions in the committees. I believe that within two or three months, the law of conversion will pass. It has different versions. The idea is the following. The idea is to uh, allow local city rabbis to carry out conversions. Today, the conversions in Israel are done only by the basin of the chief rabbinate and uh, a few uh, teams of, uh, based of uh, rabbinic courts. And the idea is that local rabbis will be able, as it was the situation 30 years ago, they will be able to carry out conversions. That's the formalistic aspect. What is the essence of the dispute? And there is a dispute about it. The essence of the dispute is the question of converting minors in Israel. You know, I, I need to explain it. I have two minutes, Robert yes, Thank you. Of course. So in Israel today, we have around half a million immigrants that arrived to Israel that are not Jewish. Among them, we have around 100,000 people between the ages of zero and 18 that are not Jewish. Another 100,000 between the ages of 18 and 30, 35, around. Now, every year, we have another 5,000 minors that are born. This, these are the numbers. These kids are going to learn with our kids in the schools, in the army. They're going to serve together in the army. They grow up as, an, as Israelis. And you have to understand, for a secular Israeli, he couldn't care less whether the rabbinate recognizes his Judaism or doesn't recognize. For him, he's a part of him. He doesn't see himself more or less Jewish than him. By the way, most of them, if not all of them, will celebrate Pesach and Yom Kippur, will, fa will fast or will go to Shul and Yom Kippur, whatever they will do, um, just like their secular neighbors. The question is, should we make an effort to convert the kids before they arrive to the age of Bar Mitzvah in order to make the process 
of converting much easier, halachically speaking, because when you convert um, adults, the demand of accepting all mitzvot, of accepting the Jewish laws with all the actual, with all the considerations of, of that, with all the uh, uh, ramifications of that, is, 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 is very meaningful. Now, most of the Russians do, do not want to lie and do not want to convert because they have no intention to be from. So what, they, what the, the option that we think about is converting kids. This is the dispute. There are many rabbis that are in favor of that. There are many rabbis that are against that. That's the dispute. But the formalistic aspect of this dispute is the conversion of city rabbis. We, our time is running out, but I don't want to leave without something that was in the news this week regarding Bennett's government deciding not to move forward with the, what, they, what is referred to as the Ezrat Yisrael, the egalitarian platform that was supposed to be built by the Koto and uh, to, by the, the excavations there. And it was reported in the press that you also were not in favor of the Ezrat Yisrael. Um, can you give us your perspective on whether or not this is a good thing to happen or not? Well, first of all, I didn't speak a word to the press about Ezrat Israel in the last year or two. So I don't know what quotation was taken from me because I never, uh, not never. Look, basically the solution of Ezrat Israel is a solution that I don't want to be, to say that I'm one of the fathers of this solution, but I'm one of those who believe that this is a, um, the right way to solve this problem. The debate today about Ezrat Israel is not about the place. It's not even about the accessibility of the place. And it's not even about the budget to uh, innovate the place and to build the, uh, all the facilities that, that are needed. That's not the story today. It's the, the budget is there and the, the platform is built. That's not the issue. The debate today is about one thing. Who will have, who will be in charge on that place? Will it be taken from the rabbi of the Kotel or, and will be given to the reform and conservative rabbis in, in Yerushalayim, or will it stay under the responsibility of the rabbi of the Kotel? That's the essence of the debate. Now, it's not about the, the, the place of praying. It's not about nothing. It's about only about a symbolic, I don't want to undermine this, the, 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 the symbolism of this, or, or, because if the government will give it to the reform rabbis, it means for the first time that the word reform rabbi is mentioned in any Israeli official document. Because until now, they were never recognized as, a, as something that exists. So I guess that Naftali Bennett uh, wanted to escape from the political uh, outcome of such a decision. And that's why he decided to postpone it in half a year, if I understand correct what he was doing, but I'm not involved in, so I'm not in, is not involved and I'm not involved in this. I'm deeply involved in the conversion and the Kashrut issues, but in the story of the Kotel, I'm not involved at all. Uh, I leave something to others. <laughs> there is a lot still to do within those areas, and we haven't even touched about uh, Sohar's efforts on, on Tikkun Lel Shavuot, where thousands of people come. Purim, Purim, Bar Mitzvah, Burial, Ethical Center. 
I could talk to you hours, but uh, let's leave something to another opportunity. For another opportunity. And I want to thank you. Our time is up. And I want to thank you for your time and thank you for all of your efforts. I look forward to seeing you in person again very soon, Rev Stav. And uh, hopefully, maybe have you come back to visit us at Congregation KINS again, as you have in the past. Be'ezrat Hashem, looking forward, waiting to your invitation. Have a wonderful evening, and thank you for everything. Bye-bye. Shalom. Bye.